0: Ten years ago, this October, one of the largest search and rescue operations in the history of Virginia sent multiple canine teams, a tactical dive team, and thousands of volunteers on horseback, in kayaks, and rappelling down quarry walls into a national park to find an eight-year-old boy. This community cared about this little one. And if you don't know anything about search and rescue teams and and, and operations like this, 50% of searches like this actually end within three hours. 93% of them end in about 24 hours. This particular search lasted five days. For five days, thousands of people played this extreme game of hide and seek. Helicopters equipped with infrared cameras, professional search organizations using night vision and thermal imaging, and neighbors even called in through a reverse 911 call where all the landlines in the community started to ring saying, Come help. This entire community combed a national park for this little boy. On day five of the search, a man told his wife that he wanted to join that search, and so he went out to buy a coat, a hat, some new gloves. And by the time that he arrived at the volunteer training center, he was too late for that day's training, and so he was turned away. But he decided to to continue and drive himself to the search area, and so he parked and he followed his instincts. The the people that were supposed to be standing guard of certain areas or, or were searching kind of didn't notice him and just kind of let him be on his way if they did notice him. And he followed his instincts all the way to the rock quarry, all the way to a chasm in the rock quarry. There was a body in the fetal position at the bottom. Cold, scared, covered in ticks, dirt, bruises, and scratches, the boy was alive. The man took his hat off and put it on the boy. He put his gloves on the boy's swollen hands, and he wrapped them in his warm coat, gave him some water, and called 911. The search was over, and the boy was brought to a hospital where he was taken care of. And at the end of all this, the, the, the media was trying to reach out to this man, but he refused to reveal his identity. He, didn't wanna, he wanted to remain anonymous publicly, and so he issued a statement through the sheriff's department, and this is what he said. I was guided by the Holy Spirit. To take any recognition for finding the boy would take credit away from God. This was a nightmare for any family. For any community, really, to lose a child like that, to spend an entire week worried about him, to to start to to shift from rescue to recovery as the days started to blur together, only to be overwhelmed by the joy of finding this lost son, this lost brother, this lost little one. This community put everything that they had into the search, everything that they could possibly conjure up into finding this boy, into bringing him home alive. This morning, how much more will the God who made us put everything he has into finding lost people like us and bringing us home alive? This morning, we continue our series called Dear Church, a pastor's letter to the church with another parable that illustrates what your pastors pray for you. What what I, as your pastor, pray and want for us as a community, what Pastor Jesus wants for his people Last week, my prayer for you as your pastor is that you would hear God's word, that you would retain it, persevere in your faith, and produce good fruit because of that word. This morning, we're stepping into another parable in the gospel of Luke, a parable that I, as your pastor, pray reminds you, reminds us of how central the gospel is in our life as a church community, that it is the core of who we are and that it changes everything about us. It is a parable that many of us might be familiar with, The parable that tells a lost and found story that illustrates the, the search and rescue operation of God and defines who is really lost and how they can be found. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can get one from the carts in the back. The text will be up on the screen. If you really don't have a Bible even at home, you can take one of those Bibles home with you. They're our gift to you. If you're joining us online, I I really would encourage you to to open up your Bibles with us as we read. I also want to make a quick point and say that some of these slides may not jump on the screen for you if you're online because we've had some technical issues that happened, but we still love you and we're glad you're with us and you can just stare at my ugly mug the whole time. This morning, we're going to do things a little bit different though, even as you open to Luke 15. Luke 15. So my plan is we're actually going to go through the entire chapter, all 32 verses, which doesn't mean that I'm going to keep you here for four or five hours, but it does mean that I'm not going to read everything right here at the beginning. We're going to experience this parable as it goes through, as it progresses, but I still want us to acknowledge the authority of God as we step into his word Declare, not just with our beliefs, but with our bodies, that we are submitting ourselves to God's word. And so I'm still going to ask you to stand as we read the first three verses of this chapter. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read through Luke 15, 1 through 3, because this is not just any book we're reading this morning. This is the very words of God. It is God breathes, 2 Timothy reminds us. So people of God, would you hear God's word from Luke 15, 1 through 3? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. This is God's word. You may be seated. Here in these first three verses is the preface to our story. The chapter in the book that, if you're a reader, you normally skipped. The introduction to what is about to take place the scene that takes shape here is a a crowd that's that's forming around Jesus as he's teaching. And if you're there and you see it, it it doesn't look like the best crowd. right? At least according to the important people in the neighborhood. Filled with tax collectors and sinners, traitors to their countrymen, and the riffraff of society, if you will. This crowd was not the right social circle for a teacher of Jesus' caliber. At least to hear the Pharisees and teachers of the law describe it. These Pharisees and teachers of the law are the quote-unquote important people I just mentioned, these religious leaders who had power and influence in the neighborhood, in the county, in the region that they found themselves in. They grumble and they mutter to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, which is a problem for them because this man is an up-and-coming rabbi, an up-and-coming religious leader, and he's not following protocol. He doesn't seem to care to follow protocol. He's not doing typical rabbi things like avoiding the people that would get rabbi clothes too dirty to serve God. At least to hear the Pharisees and teachers of the law tell it. They're frustrated. Because it's not just social norms that Jesus is breaking. It it's almost seems like Jesus is doing more than that. Like he is going out of his way to do more than that. It almost seems like Jesus is, is, is somehow widening the inner circle and calling that the kingdom of God. Like, like, like there's a different standard for who gets to be in, and it's not the righteous, well, at least not the self-righteous, It's the sinners. But isn't that backwards? Isn't that not the way we were taught? Not to hear Jesus tell it. Verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. The rest of the chapter is Jesus' answer to the implicit accusations of these religious complainers. An answer that is one story told in three parts. I want you to notice that the text actually says that Jesus tells a parable, not three parables. Parables. Each part of this three-part story makes its own point, but at the same time, together, they make the same point. And so the way we're going to walk through the the text this morning is we're going to see the three points that these stories make on their own, and they are this, that God loves you enough to go after you, that God loves you enough to turn the house upside down, and that he loves you enough to meet you where you are. Each of these are different, but they also each work together to say the same thing, if you have ears to hear it. What these three points come together to say is that God brings lost people home no matter what kind of lost they are. That's what I think all three of these stories are building up towards doing, that no matter what kind of lost you are, God loves to bring people home, to to search and rescue people that are lost in sin, to go out into the cold, into the rain, into the danger, whatever danger it is, even if it's going to cost him his life to bring sinners back This is a story of a gospel for outcasts, a gospel for pariahs, for untouchables, for rejects and losers, good news for those that for whatever reason, whatever sin they did, whatever was done to them, are not in the inner circle of society. This is the good news that for sinners like us that are not in the inner circle because we have become enemies of God, and yet he's on his way to change that. This is the good news that God leaves the comfort of his inner circle to invite more and more people into that inner circle through faith and grace and repentance because God brings lost people home no matter what kind of lost they are. So I want to start with the first act of this story where Jesus explains this, this point by illustrating that he loves you enough to go after you. He loves you enough to search and he illustrates this with the story of a shepherd and it's, it's a pretty brilliant story that he begins with a direct question. Look at the text in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Jesus kind of begins his answer by, by tossing him a softball. The answer to this rhetorical question that's supposed to come to mind is, yes, Jesus, clearly all of us would do this. All of us would go looking for this sheep, Jesus, because we know that sheep in this time are not family pets. Right? These, these sheep are our livelihood. They, they are walking, talking, pooping 401Ks. And so Jesus asked him an easy question, but he's actually working towards a point. And here's his twist in verse 5. When he, the shepherd, finds it, when he finds this sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Uh, you lost me, Jesus. Because that's not what I would do. I mean, Jesus, I would make that sheep walk home. That she needs to learn its lesson not to wander. I mean, there are bears out here, Jesus. It's better to learn a harsh lesson now than a fatal one later. But Jesus doesn't let up and a twist actually gets better. Then he, the shepherd, calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. (laughs) Hold on, Jesus. You're saying that not only is the sheep going to not learn its lesson, but now this this shepherd is throwing a party over one one sheep. I mean, a hundred sheep and one. He's going to throw a party. Well, you can almost... Feel the confusion turn to frustration when Jesus finally makes his point in verse seven. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. The overtop, over the top reaction of this uh, imaginary shepherd is an imaginary mirror placed in this story to reflect a very real scene of joy of God's joy, joy over the repentance of these sinners who are gathering to hear the good news of the kingdom, even as the religious people, those who are supposed to be God's mouthpiece to call sinners home, as these religious leaders are standing on the outside grumbling to themselves about who Jesus is letting get near him. Step out of the parable for a moment. Do you hear what Jesus is saying without saying it? The shepherd leaves the 99 who do not need to repent. These, those who are already in, to go after the one who needs to repent, who is out, in order to bring that one back home. To put it plainly, God goes looking for sinners, and when he finds them, he does not make them walk back so that they learn their lesson. No, he is a tender and caring and protective shepherd. He's filled with joy. A joy that is so loud that it fills heaven. It overwhelms heaven and floods the place with celebration. This reminds me of when I was growing up in Miami, in my uh, Latino community with my Latino friends, we, we threw a party for everything. I got an A in class, party. It's Monday, party. You woke up, party. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is talking, God has. You repent, party, every single time. Now Jesus, we wouldn't throw a party because we found one lost sheep. That feels like a lot, but for God it isn't. He loves us enough to go after us. He is gentle and He is kind and He will carry us on His shoulders if He has to. He he wants to find us so badly. He wants us home so badly that He is willing to do whatever it takes to get us there. And He leaps at the smallest sign of repentance with joy. This first act of Jesus' parable shows us that God is willing to search and that there is joy. I mean legitimately over the top joy in the finding but the second act actually builds on this point with something very different. Because in this second act, Jesus focuses on the search itself. In this next act of Jesus' parable, we encounter another imaginary search and rescue hero that mirrors our Savior and illustrates the truth that God loves you enough to turn the house upside down. Look at verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins, Jesus says, and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? The scene here shifts from rolling hills to a dark house where a woman has lost a coin, the equivalent of a day or a half day's paycheck. Lost somewhere in her house, she, she lights the place up, sets up a search grid, and starts to hunt in every nook and cranny that she can find, every corner of the house, until she finds that coin. Now, I don't know how scenes like this play out in your house, but if I need to find something in my house... I'm not the best person at finding things. My wife will tell you that, that every time I need it, I know that it's there, but all of a sudden, it feels like it just decided to disappear the moment I needed to look for it. I know where that flashlight is. Uh, I know that the batteries are here somewhere in this general area. I know my keys are somewhere in this house and God knows it's not big enough for me to lose my key. Where are my keys? And I ask because the, the biggest miracle is not that these objects disappear every time I need to find them. The biggest miracle is that when I need to find them, my wife finds them with little to no effort. And most of the time it's like right in front of me. As I'm asking her, love, can you help me find this? She's like, just look down. This woman doesn't have that problem. In Jesus' story, this parabolic woman does not have the same issue. She looks, she looks, she looks, and in her careful and diligent search, unlike my haphazard search, she finds. And the, verse, the text says, verse 9, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Does that sound familiar? Over-the-top joy at finding something lost. Same thing like the first act. And so Jesus repeats his point in verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is willing to search, but more than that, God is willing to search carefully for the lost. One writer says it like this Our God is the God of the universe and the God of square inches. In other words, the Creator King who made everything searches every square inch, is willing to turn the house upside down to find his lost image bearers. He loves us that much, and it brings him over-the-top joy. It's not the kind of thing that God does because he has to, right? Because it's his duty as God, because he made us, and, well, he has to keep track of his stuff. He searches, and he rescues, and he carries sheep back on shoulders and, and, and turns a house upside down for a coin and throws a party as he rescues because it brings him joy. Church, this is how much he loved you when he found you. This is how much love God has for you when he went looking for you and found you. You brought him in all of heaven joy when you repented. When you, when you repented in response to his pursuit of you, his grace coming to you. And now he calls us as his church to imitate him. Ephesians 5.1 tells us to follow God's example. And so what does that mean in this particular story? It means searching for those lost in sin like you were lost in sin. It means following Jesus into the middle, middle of the crowd that he is in. A crowd of sinners and tax collectors, a crowd that Jesus not only associated with, but wanted to associate with. Because he says in Luke 5, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But I don't want you to get it twisted when I talk about this and make it as dramatic as it is. Jesus never let sin ride as if it didn't matter, but he never abandoned people in their sin, and he never gagged when sinners approached. Sin outraged and offended Jesus. He had to give his life to save us from it. But sinners never outraged or offended Jesus. He spent so much time with them that in the Gospels, he's actually accused of being a sinner himself. I mean, he must be if he's just hanging out with these people all the time. Church, how often have we declined an invitation from people who didn't believe in Jesus because we were afraid of what our presence might communicate to them, what our presence might communicate to others that are watching us? How often have we believed that somehow presence equals participation in sin and avoided people just like us who need the grace of God. People that we think are so far unlike us because we forget what it took to save us. That they now not only have their sins that separate them, but our self-righteousness that separates them from us. By telling this story, Jesus is telling the religious leaders and really frankly telling us, I am not who you think I am. Jesus loved these people. His his love swelled rather than shriveled in the face of sin because he knew what sin was doing to them. He he, he knew what their sin and the sin of others was doing to them, how it was choking the life out of them, the life that he, as God, wanted so badly for them, the life that they were made for, that he made them for, this, this sin that was separating them from him and betraying the God that they were made for. And their sin, instead of repulsing him, attracted him. Not because he wanted to participate in their sin, but because he wanted to save them from participating in their own sin. It was actually the the, the self-righteousness of the religious leaders that seemed to repulse Jesus. Wait a minute, is that right? Or did Jesus just have another way of showing his love for them? The answer to that question comes in the third act of this parable. The last act of the three. The longest one by far, the most famous of these three stories, the story of the prodigal son. This third act, though, is not just focused on one lost son. It is focused on two lost sons. Two lost sons and a father who, Tim Keller suggests, is as prodigal as his younger son. You see, prodigal is a word that means wastefully extravagant. And this father is as extravagant in his compassion as the younger son was in his spending. This last act of the parable shows rather than tells the beautiful reality that God loves you enough to meet you where you are, wherever you are, whoever you are. Whether you are a son who left the inner circle in sin or a son who stands on the edge of the inner circle and grumbles. Verse 11, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. Immediately, right at the beginning, we get the three main characters that I just mentioned, a a father, a man, and two of his sons. The younger one, verse 12, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, which is a request that basically says, give me what's coming to me when you die. It's borderline, hey, I just kind of wish you were dead so we could move this stuff along. In fact, that that practice is not unheard of, but it's certainly not socially acceptable. And the father, uh, almost silently in the story, because he doesn't respond to the younger son, the text says, divided his property between them. The younger son got what was coming to him, as did the older son. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Essentially, the son liquidates everything that he has, and decides to go somewhere so that he can make it rain. And spend all. It. Come on, that was a good one, guys. <laughs> Come on now. He spends all his money. He goes on this wild spending spree, all of it. And the story continues, verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He irresponsibly handled his money after irresponsibly obtaining his money, and now something that he was not responsible for, a famine, amplifies his problems, and essentially his world is disintegrating. Very upsetting, I know. (laughs) Verse 15, in the middle of all this, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. All of a sudden, this younger son owns his own problems and responsibly hops on ancientmiddleeasternindeed.com to find a job. And the only person that calls him back is a pig farmer. so he takes the only job that he has. That's how bad it was for him, you guys. That the job that he took was with pigs. This Jewish man took a job working with pigs. Pigs that were animals that these people considered unclean. The ultimate symbol of rock bottom... And that's what he's doing. To make matters worse, he's not even making enough money to feed himself. Verse 16, he longed to fill his his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He was alone and his stomach growled every time he went to work. And at the bottom, it was almost impossible to see the light. But then one day, the light seemed to break through. In verse 17, he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Suddenly, this younger son realizes something. There is more than enough food at my father's house. And I know how I can maybe get it. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father. And this is what I'll say to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The younger son is in the field, stomach growling, light bulb moment. And he starts to practice his apology speech. He starts to rehearse what he's going to say his, in his father. He looks at me and says, Dad, nope, too close, doesn't work. I, I, I'm not sure how he's going to take this father. Okay, I think that, that communicates that. I'm, I'm, I'm not presuming upon anything. Father, I have sinned against God and against you. The humility that's starting to bubble up as he practices. Tears might be filling his eyes. I, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I know, how, I know that I gave up that right a long time ago. But I beg of you, let me work for you. Treat me like one of your staff. I know you treat your staff better than I'm being treated here right now. He practices and practices his confession, his plea for grace, for something that he knows he does not deserve. And then when he finally gets it right, the text says he got up and went to his father. Rehearsing the words every step of the way, every time his stomach grumbled, every time he imagined the anger of his father, arms crossed, back turned. But if this third act is anything like the first two, we know what's coming. The text says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The joy of Acts 1 and 2 explodes onto the younger son in his father's long driveway. Now in his father's arms, in between kisses meant for a son, he he feels the love of his father, but but he almost, he peels his father away from him, clears his throat, throat, and begins his speech, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Maybe he might be thinking, okay, this welcome, it means good things. It means that he might listen to what I have to say. I might, I might be able to come back. But before he can get to his request for a job, the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The over-the-top joy of Acts 1 and 2 are surpassed by the over-the-top joy of this father. If you don't necessarily know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you know that this father has defied all social norms when he ran to his son. Middle Eastern fathers do not run, let alone show their legs. And so he runs to his son. And if that wasn't enough, he runs to a son that has shamed him in front of the entire community. He runs to his son in joy and in compassion, and unexpected, over the top joy and compassion, and accepts his son before his son says a word. Kissing his son, indicating you, you're, you're already my son again. The son tries to interrupt, but this father now amplifies his acceptance with these gifts of grace after gift of grace, a robe, a ring, sandals, images that communicate the restoration of his identity as a son. But the joy doesn't even stop there because the father starts to plan a party with the kind of food that was, would take hours to prepare, the kind of food that only came out a few times a year that was for special occasions, the kind of food, food that, that screams joy because it fills the house with amazing smells. All of the community, all of the family gathering to celebrate. Why? Because, listen to what the Father says, this son of mine, not a new hire, not a hired hand, not a new worker, this son of mine has come back to life. This lost son is no longer lost, he is found, he is home. This is the extravagant, prodigal joy at the return of the lost. This is the joy of God, of extravagant grace, every time he gets the chance to overwhelm someone with his grace. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 describes it like this. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Notice that the text says his grace does not just come out of his riches, it comes out in accordance with his riches. He gives like someone that doesn't have to worry about running out. He forgives out of the abundance of his grace. He saves out of the overwhelming joy that it brings him to bring lost sinners back home. Unfortunately, though, there are many of us who are busy rehearsing our speeches. Assuming that we came back home through the back door. That God received us reluctantly like hired hands rather than the children come back from the dead. Children that he loves Children that he sacrificed everything for. Sons and daughters because of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. When Jesus tells the story, the cross hasn't happened yet. But when we read the story, we're reading on the other side of the cross. And that is what gets us from sinners on the outside to sons and daughters on the inside. The message of the gospel that Jesus lived a perfect life. A life that we were supposed to live. A life that feels a lot like the older brother's life. Faithful. We'll get to that. He lived a life absent of sin and filled with love. The life we should have been living. And then he was murdered. Murdered by the people of God and the empire of Rome. By his image bearers. By humans who he created. Image bearers on both sides of the track. Murdered on a cross. He died the death we should have died. He was innocent but we are not. The Bible says that our sins require death, punishment, but the gospel, the good news that brings sinners back home is that Jesus took that death on the cross. He took that death for us and then came back to life so that all who have faith, all who in humility acknowledge their sin that separates them from God would be forgiven. In other words, all who repent and turn from their sin and turn towards Jesus in faith, the repentant that we've been talking about in this story can be forgiven and restored. Not as workers who have to earn their place in the family, but as children who have a place because they have been made into family. And it is God's joy to do this. Do you believe that this morning? Before the rest of you answer, I want you to notice that this parable is still not over. Jesus hasn't made his point yet. I said at the beginning of this third act, the story is about a compassionate father and two lost sons, not just one lost son. And so I want you to look at the second son that I talked about a little bit earlier in verse 25 and watch how the father responds to him. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. The party's raging, and after a long day of work, he's walking up the driveway, and he stops in that same driveway that just hosted a father-son reunion and wonders what in the world is going on. He calls a servant over and asks him, what's going on? And the servant replies. He says, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The servant doesn't have to say much more. He just had to say fattened calf and his brother in the same sentence, and the older brother knows exactly what's going on. He is crystal clear, and the text says in verse 28 that the older brother became angry and refused to go in. The joyful response of the father fades into the background as the anger of the older brother becomes centered in the story now, and he refuses to join the celebration. In other words, this insider has made himself an outsider by his actions, and yet the father does not disregard his firstborn. He does not cut his losses and leave the sheep outside. He does not write off the coin as an acceptable loss. The text says that the father went out and pleaded with him. The father goes out to him, meets him where he is. He goes out searching for his son, but this is where the story turns. Because the older son then answers his father's pleading Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, I've never disobeyed your orders you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes I imagine I don't know what he was doing and he comes home you kill the fattened calf for him? the words of this older son come roaring out of him in the middle of his father's invitation to joy and he wants justice it's not fair I did everything right and you never treated me like this You didn't even give me a young goat, which at this time is the equivalent of getting a McDonald's cheeseburger versus to the steak that the the younger son gets to have in his party. When this, this, it's almost like he can't even bring himself to call him his brother. When this son of yours, you know you're in trouble when your parents don't call you by your name or even say my son, right? You walk into the room and they say, hey, do you know what your son did today? He's that angry. This son of yours, this guy who left us, who left you and and took what you gave him, wasted it, did immoral things with it. He took what you gave him, and now he doesn't even have it when he comes back. And the moment he shows up, you celebrate him? In essence, he's accusing his father, and he says, That seems like the immorality of my younger brother, your younger son, holds more weight than the faithfulness of your older son. That's what it feels like, Dad. Dad. The father doesn't let this accusation stand, though. But his response to his older son is as unexpected as his response to his younger son. There is compassion in his voice. There is pleading in his eyes. Verse 31, my son, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. There's no condemnation here. There is a reaffirmation of identity, my son, a confirmation of his faithfulness. You are always with me. I have not overlooked you. I see you. You are always with me. Not only that, but there's a reminder of his place in the family. Everything I have is yours. You still hold a special place in my heart. I'm not withholding anything from you. It's so easy, isn't it, to see what others have and think so little of what you have. Nothing that has happened, neither the return of the younger son, nor the celebration of his father, has in any way reduced or diminished the older brother's identity as son, his faithfulness to his father, or his place in the family, and yet his anger has revealed his heart. And yet the father's heart is different. He continues speaking to his older son. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad because this this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father doesn't allow the older son to create distance between him and his brother. This son of yours has become this brother of yours. You are part of this family and your brother is part of this family once again, which means that we have to celebrate. Not we get to celebrate, we have to celebrate. And if you haven't noticed by now in all three of these acts, there is joy that defines, is at the core of the kingdom of God. The joy of lost people being found. The joy of sinners coming to repentance, of lost sons and daughters coming home, the joy of salvation. The kingdom of God without this kind of joy is an oxymoron. It is an impossibility, a contradiction. The character of God as one who rejoices when sinners come to repentance defines the character of his kingdom, the character of his people. Joy is core to being a Christian. It is not an option. It is not an elective. It is critical. But it is also not something that can be forced. You cannot smile big enough or sing loud enough to generate joy. Christian joy is generated by a deeper and deeper awareness that goes past our heads and deep into our souls of what it took for God to save us, of the mercy of God available to us in Christ, of who we are, of how much has been forgiven, that we are created in His image, and how far God went in His search and rescue operation to save us and what it means that He is now restoring us this reality that gets all the way to the core of who we are, that reality powers the singing and the smiles and better yet the holding on when life gets rough when suffering comes when that son hasn't come home yet. That reality powers true Christian joy. The parable of Jesus ends on a cliffhanger if you haven't noticed yet because we've finished reading the text. The father pleads with the older brother, the older brother vents his anger, the father patiently reframes the scenario from law to gospel, and then this question hangs in the air, what's the older brother going to do now? One author points out this story is much more about the legalism of the older brother than the hedonism of the younger brother. The wasteful living of the younger brother is stated, but it's not really described. But the resentment of the older brother is stated and described in full frustration Remember the context of this story, verses 1-3, through 3, the religious leaders are grumbling on the outer ring of a crowd of sinners that are gathering around Jesus. The point has always been, to them, who is really lost? Who is actually further from God's kingdom? Those who are brought in with joy or those who stand on the outside grumbling? Unfortunately, like the older son, too often we Christians get too close to joy and respond with cynicism. You're suspicious instead of rejoicing. The unspoken question of the older brother confronts us. Are you going to go inside and share in the joy of your father? You see, the truth beneath this parable is that God brings lost people home no matter what kind of lost they are. Whether we are lost like the younger son, wallowing in the pursuit of pleasure, poisoning us, or lost like the older son, sitting in the seat of self-righteousness, also poisoning us. God calls lost people home. The father goes out to the younger son and restores him. The father also goes out to the older son and pleads with him. The father goes out to us wherever we are and pleads with us to come home. Later in Luke 19, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is Savior search and rescue that Jesus is after. The good news of this Savior, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not just some nice message that gets preached from the front of here, that gets sung about up here. It is the center of the kingdom of God. It is the center of the Christian life, and it must be core to who we are as the people of God here in Streamwood, in this particular local body of believers, because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the lost like you and the lost like me. If you're not a Christian here this morning, the call of this passage from the Father is to come home, he calls you through Jesus to repent, to turn from your sin. Maybe you're like the younger son in the parable. In, in wasteful living, in the middle of a spending spree, he calls you to, the, to you this morning to turn from that sin that is, that is trying so hard to kill you that you might not even see it. That you're wasting your life on. To find true life in him. Maybe you're like the younger son in the field. You know you're at rock bottom and you're already rehearsing your speech. You're trying to get right before you come home. Because you know, I I need to come home, but the Father runs to you this morning and kisses you before you even have a chance to speak. That's grace. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, but you're still in the driveway and you're having a hard time with the extravagant love of God. Maybe you've walked away from Him, or or maybe you've struggled the whole time to get this, this love of the gospel kind of thing. It's just too good to be true, and you still think that God wants you like He wants a hired hand. This morning, He calls you son calls you daughter. He calls you child. If you just repent and turn from your sin, come home. The Christian life is not a once in a lifetime repentance. It is a life of repentance, turning from sin and responding to God's grace daily, regularly, not to earn it, but because you have already experienced the extravagant love of God. I'll close where this parable closes. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you're you look around and You're grumbling under your breath, maybe in your heart, about this or that person at church. Glad they're here. They really need Jesus. Maybe even worse, why are they here? They don't really belong. Why are they dressed like that? It's a little too much ink on those shoulders for me. Maybe it's still small and it hasn't become full-blown Pharisee and teachers of the law kind of complaining. If there is any kind of frustration, resentment, anger, even discomfort that you refuse to correct with the kind of people that are coming to Jesus, you are just as outside as you think they are. And God comes out to you this morning to plead with you. To plead with you to turn from your anger and step into the joy of a God who celebrates the repentance of every single person, no matter who they are, no matter how lost they are. Christians, we are supposed to respond to the generosity of God in Jesus to us and to everyone who believes with joy, with over-the-top joy. We are all on the search-and-rescue team with our search-and-rescue Savior, and when we find the person we've been looking for, it should not be like, ah, well, they finally came to Jesus. Remember how far you used to be from Jesus. Let the riches of grace drive you to be part of God, showing his riches of grace to others. Don't let the fear of being associated with those that society has defined as outcasts, those that might be defined as sinners, keep you away. Even Jesus was labeled a sinner. But that's not who he was. He was a savior who loved sinners so much that he loved them right where they were and loved them too much to leave them where they were, who invited them to repentance. This morning, whether you are a Christian or not, the call of this text is for you to Repent and enter the joy of God's kingdom, a joy that is over all sinners who repent, who become lost sons and lost daughters that are now found, dead, now alive. Would you repent this morning of whatever it is that keeps you from the joy of the Father? Would you pray with me? Compassionate Father, this morning, we are grateful for your salvation in Christ. You have not left us in our sins. Like lost sheep, you carry us home on your shoulders in joy. Like lost coins, you turn the house upside down and throw a party when you find us. Like lost sons, you come out to us in joy, at repentance. You plead with us to repent. So we are grateful. We pray that you would humble us that we never forget what it took to save us. Give us joyful hearts whenever we see someone, anyone, repent. Lord, we want to be part of your search and rescue mission here in Streamwood, here in this tri-village area. Would you help us to be shaped by your joy and your love this morning as a community that communicates the gospel of grace, the gospel of your kingdom. May we let you define who gets to be in your kingdom. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.